Hey, Future Hindsight listeners, we're doing a short audience survey that will help us deliver the content you know and love. We really do need your participation and hope you'll take the time to fill it out. It's a great free way to support Future Hindsight and all the work we do. Please go to our show notes and click on the link for the survey there. We also would love your support on our Patreon page, aptly named The Civics Club. Enjoy early access, transcripts, and ad-free content for just $1.99 a month. Thanks so much in advance, and thanks also for being such loyal listeners. Shelter in Place started as this creative endeavor, this kind of time capsule, And very, very quickly, it became the way that my family and I were rewriting life and figuring out what we were going to do with this new reality where just about everything was suddenly very, very uncertain. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. In this episode, I speak with Laura Joyce Davis, the host of Shelter in Place. We discuss how podcasting and the pandemic has changed each of us and what we've discovered about humanity in the process. We start with the origin story of Laura's podcast. Why did you decide to start Shelter in Place? So I started Shelter in Place really as a creative lifeline for myself. I've been a fiction writer for more than 20 years, and I really thought, you know, here I'm going to have my kids home with me 24-7. And I was a little worried about just how I would survive that well. And I thought, you know what, if I can document what's happening here for myself, that'll kind of give me something to stay tethered in this time that feels very strange. And then it'll also be this nice little historical artifact that someday my kids can look back and say, oh, that's what we went through back in 2020 when for a few weeks the world shut down. Well, of course, I had no idea what I was getting into. I was doing daily episodes six days a week. Very quickly, it became my full-time job. And four months later, I concluded season one with 100 episodes. And so Shelter in Place started as this creative endeavor, this kind of time capsule. And very, very quickly, it became the way that my family and I were rewriting life and figuring out what we were going to do with this new reality where just about everything was suddenly very, very uncertain. You know, I thought there was so much honesty and humanity in your daily chronicles. And it was this riveting window into your life and how you guys coped day to day. I mean, you talk a lot about the sense of uncertainty and to listen to those early days now, a year hence, it's so surprising how much we've adapted because our level of uncertainty has not decreased, right? The pandemic is still with us. And we're now used to this idea that, well, we're going to make these plans, but they might not happen. And we're going to be okay with that. Oh, absolutely. No, it's such a good point. We talk about living in the moment, but it's never felt quite both so helpful and necessary to embrace the present. I think we are in this moment where it's just not possible to plan ahead the way that we may be used to. And 
you know, maybe we were just fooling ourselves into thinking that we could actually control things. But I think the pandemic has really done that for many of us and just making us realize we have to let go of some of that control and try to just accept that uncertainty is a part of life. And I think that's been a lot of our journey. Yeah, so much, right? My kids on Monday, I got an email saying, oh, there have been too many cases. We're shutting school right now. Classes are canceled this afternoon. And then we're going to remote only. And it's the kind of thing where I thought, oh, you could have told us this yesterday, like on Sunday, <laughs> you know, not on Monday. And it changes your whole life overnight. Just that, right? <laughs> right. But it's also the kind of thing where I feel like our reaction to that was like, oh, OK, well, they're coming home now. As opposed to, I think, a year ago, we would have freaked out. Oh, yeah. We would have been like, who has COVID? Or started a podcast. <laughs> oh, yes. Or started a podcast. <laughs> right. It's very brave. It's very brave. Yes, there's so much work. I had no idea how brave when I did it, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's sometimes the only way, right? I mean, yeah. how can you embark on something that requires so much fortitude? If you knew this beforehand, I don't think you would do it. I think that's right. If I had known what I was getting into, I almost certainly would not have done it, not just because of the workload, but also because I think the vulnerability it kind of pushed me to is something that I would not have gone seeking in the beginning. And at the same time, I'm deeply, deeply grateful that it happened. But, you know, I got an education in audio that I think many people would have to work in it for years to get what I got in those four months. And then also pushing myself to a new place as a writer and a creative and a mom and all of those things. But I also understand that it was just this weird confluence of events, both in my own life and in the world, that even made something like that possible. I mean, just my life unraveling. My husband, who had been kind of the breadwinner in our family, lost his job just a couple weeks into the pandemic. So we went from having a pretty stable life to suddenly really asking big questions about, okay, how long can we do this? And we had to figure out some big things quickly. The flip side of that was that he was home with the kids. And so I was able to do this work that would never have been possible if he had continued on with that job. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about this past year is how, while there is so much to grieve, there are also things to celebrate in this time. And it's not to dismiss the hard things. I think those things live in tension all the time. You know, I love that about your podcast, that I think you hold that tension really well of our very broken world. And yet there are amazing people out there who are doing wonderful work to try to heal those wounds and figure out how to do life better. And I mean, I wanted to ask you, when the pandemic hit, you were already doing this work. And how did that shift you in this time? I think because we have been already doing it, we were almost on autopilot. But in the meantime, I thought to myself, well, now that I've been doing this show on civic engagement, I really want to know if this is the kind of crisis that can really change the way that we behave as a society. I'm really interested in our social contract. And for sure, as you've said, our social contract is broken. You know, only some benefit and others really don't. Yesterday, I had an interview with someone about the minimum wage and how 
it being stagnant for 10 years really means it is the equivalent of a 30% pay cut. And we don't talk about it in this way. I just think, if not now, then when? And so I felt almost like there's more of an urgency (laughs) to do this work, because now finally we feel like, okay, well, everybody now is broke and everybody now needs help and everybody cannot pay rent. I don't know if it's really making a difference, though, (laughs) the crisis, not the podcast, because when we see what's happening in Congress, sometimes I think, oh, and still they voted against it. Yeah, you know, we've had some pretty disheartening things happen in our world. I think it's really easy to wonder, do people care enough about this to do the hard work of transformation? What I began to realize that has really been crystallized for the podcast now is that transforming our communities begins by looking at ourselves and saying, what part do I play in this? And am I actually contributing to the problem maybe? Am I honest enough with myself that I can admit that? And if so, what can I do right now to change that? And sometimes I think that's really practical. It's getting on the phone and calling your Congress people. But other times I think it's a little more subtle of maybe trying to shift your own perspective and how you've viewed the world or the assumptions you've made about people. And One of the things I've loved listening to your episodes is I think without exception, everybody that you have on the show is doing that work. They're doing that hard work of transforming their communities. I think Shelter in Place and Future Hindsight are really complementary podcasts. I think Shelter in Place definitely focuses more on the transforming ourselves. And I feel like Future Hindsight is very much looking at that community transformation piece. Both of those pieces are so, so important as we try to grapple with a world that can feel really hard to live in sometimes and to try to not lose hope in in the midst of that. I would love to hear from you. Have you been able to sustain hope or has it been really discouraging at times? Well, it's a little bit of both, but I will say because the people that we interview, they're just these dedicated citizens of the world who really are committed to making our society a better place, that I think I have become more hopeful than I would have been otherwise. When I started the podcast, I discovered that there are all these people who've been doing the work sometimes for decades and are so committed and don't lose sight of the prize, you know, and and the prize being to make incremental change. Everybody understands that this is the everyday work that's required to have justice and to have fairness and equity for everybody. Because if we don't have it for everybody, then all of us are losing. And to me, interviewing these people has been so incredibly hopeful. I I say actually to people, if they are feeling depressed, go listen to my podcast because you will be so hopeful that there are these amazing people out there. And that's one of the inspirations. You know, I started this podcast after the election of Donald Trump. And I had this premise at the time that the cure for our society will be if we all are 
civically engaged, that we all give something of ourselves, really be true stakeholders in making our lives more functional. I, like many people, was under the impression that the only next stop after voting was to run for office. And then I thought, well, that can't be, that's silly. So I started interviewing these people and I discovered there are so many things you could be doing. You just have to be a good neighbor. Your tagline for your show, a podcast about coming together in a world that pulls us apart is so apt. We really need to be committed to come together. And you showcase in your podcast the ways that people are doing that. And I hope to do the same in my podcast. I, I think you absolutely do. And I really resonate with what you said about finding hope in these conversations with other people. We're very physically isolated. And yet, I think I felt more connected in the past year because of these conversations that I'm having. It's exactly what you're saying. It's people who have been doing really incredible work, most of the time long before the pandemic, and who have a vision for what our world could be, not as a kind of fairy tale or utopia, but really understanding that it's never going to be perfect, but we can do something about it. It's not hopeless. And we're not alone in this. Even when it feels really dark, and it can, and it has, we have a lot of different kinds of people on the show, but ultimately, every single one of them is exploring this idea in some way of how can I make my community more connected? I think that's an area where our shows are very similar, even though we're talking about very different things often. I did want to ask you about your current season. I know you're looking at systemic racism, which is something that's come up a lot in our episodes as well. But I would love to hear more about how that came about and why you decided to have that be the emphasis on this season. There's so many reasons, but one of them, of course, was this huge outcry from the public last summer following the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And I really felt like I needed to unpack it in a different way for my own self because I'm an immigrant. I grew up in Indonesia. And so to me, racism in America was something slightly foreign. I wanted to get a better education but also I wanted to do a season that wasn't about racism is bad and look at those people over there, they're racist. You know, I wanted to do something that was going to unpack the roots and the way that we can think differently about the way that racism is baked into our society here. You know, just two days ago, these women were murdered in Atlanta and that really shocked me, I have to say. It made me sad and angry, and it also made me feel really thankful that I decided to do this season. It sounds backwards, but I feel like I have a much deeper understanding about the structures of racism. I think it's helping me in this moment process what happened in Atlanta a little bit better than I think if I had been without the education. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. And I love what Mari Matsuda said in one of your episodes 
about how racism isn't a bad guy. It's a system where even well-meaning people can contribute to it, sometimes unknowingly. And I think that perspective is so helpful to me. We are all living in this system where we play into this, whether or not we realize it, when the violence against Asians has been happening this last week and in recent months, it doesn't surprise me anymore. This is something we're probably going to have to be grappling with for a long time because our history with it is so long and so complicated. As long as we're not talking about that, it's hard to move forward. And so I, I really do have that hope and I think we share this hope. I'm convinced that we can do it, but I am pessimistic about the timeline. Maybe it will happen faster than we think. You know, we had Dr. Robert Jones on. He wrote a book called White Too Long. And he talks about the role of white supremacy in white Christian churches, especially in the South. And all of those statues in Richmond, Virginia, they've all come down and people never thought that that would happen, <laughs> you know, and they all basically came down in one summer. So maybe the pandemic, after all, will be a true catalyst for real change in a time where we are rethinking how we live full stop, whether in our personal life, our school life, our professional lives. This is also a good time to see how we can change the system. But systems change is hard. <laughs> this is not like an overnight thing. And we need to, for example, change laws. We need to change hiring practices. We need to change so many things. When we come back, we discuss what it's like to speak to an audience that spans the whole spectrum of political ideas. For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. This podcast from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, artists, and more from antiquity to today who've shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And the best part is, each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but either way, you definitely should. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. It's been an interesting thing with Shelter in Place, realizing as we've gotten to know our listeners that we have a pretty wide range of politics among our listeners and it's been a really interesting thing to try to talk about these things when the starting place is often so different and our understanding of a given issue is often at odds even before we start talking. It feels like we're at some sort of tipping point, especially around racism, but I think around other systemic issues as well. And the pandemic has felt often like the wounds were always there in our society, but it's pulled off the Band-Aid. And now we've all been kind of confronted with them in one way or another. So I do have hope that we can change this, but it's going to take people of all walks of life deciding that this is important enough that they may even be willing to forgo comfort or security to make some of these changes happen. 
since you speak to people on both sides of the aisle, what is the thread that is common about their humanity and their commitment to making their communities better? You know, I think it's relationships. The week before the elections, I had an interview with a former Navy SEAL who is training people for active shooter situations. He's a guy in the Denver area, very much pro-guns. And to be fair, whatever you think about guns, he's doing something that is trying to protect communities. And then the very next episode after that, I interviewed Georgia Wright, who is one of the hosts of the podcast Inherited, which is all about the youth climate movement. It's hard to imagine two more different people than the two of them. And yet, in both of those conversations, I heard them unprompted talk about just how important it was that we have deep relationships with people and that we are willing to try to talk about the hard things. And maybe we're not going to convince each other, but at least we can try to listen a little better and show up for people, even if they're people we disagree with. Both of them said different things to the same effect of, we can be a good neighbor even when we don't agree about things. And we can really try to help our neighbors feel safe just by showing up for them and maybe even going out of our way to help them at times when it calls for it. And so I think it really is that relational connection that feels like the tie and the way forward I have so many thoughts on this now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, one of the own. things. <laughs> <laughs> well, so one of the things, for example, people are like, yeah, we have to start from like a common ground. And I have learned that that's maybe not the best thing. I think what we need to do is have a common goal, which is to be, let's say, good neighbors. And then we strive for that because our backgrounds are often so different. We don't have common ground. If I'm ultra conservative and you're ultra liberal, we really don't believe the same things. It doesn't matter what I say to you, you're not going to change your mind. Like you have a belief system, but having a common goal of being a good neighbor, that's I think much more achievable. And to speak of civic engagement and getting involved at a local level, that is so much more doable than, let's say, oh, trying to speak about national politics. You know, that is so removed from our everyday lives. This reminds me of this one episode that we have with David Fleischer. He is with the LGBTQ community in Los Angeles, and they did this thing called deep canvassing. Prop 8 was just defeated in California, and they wanted to understand what people's thoughts were. And so they had these open-ended conversations about the people that they love. They discovered that if you talk to people about these personal experiences, love for your parents, love for your brothers and sisters or your spouse, and they, let's say, are disabled, and you need to have the kind of president who's going to support legislation that is going to make life better, then please come out and vote. And I thought that was so brilliant. And it really made me think of sharing a common goal. I love that. And I think it also gets at something else that we talk a lot about, which is that storytelling, those personal stories are so important in how we reach that common goal. Because like you said, they're not seeing an issue anymore. They're seeing a person. I think stories are the way that we make sense of life as human beings. And 
when we tell our story, it gives us a way to get to that common goal and to hopefully see it through somebody else's perspective. I think in sharing our stories and in sharing even the hard parts, that becomes something where we can be talking about something really divisive. I mean, you mentioned the LGBTQ plus community, and we just recently did an episode on that as well. It was an interview with a pastor and musician and author whose church had fallen apart over this issue. And when I did that episode, I was really terrified of just how do I talk about this? Because somebody's going to be upset no matter what I say. And ultimately, the way into that was my own story about an experience that I had with a dear friend of mine from the LGBTQ plus community who I had actually really hurt unknowingly years ago. We could have a conversation about it. And it wasn't an angry conversation. It was a very loving conversation at that point. I think... The common thread really is about our individual relationships and building on them and and do the best we can on those fronts. I have a question about how this podcast has changed you as a citizen, as a person within this time who is trying to raise your children and make ends meet, but to make this podcast shelter in place like a record of how we are as people. The short answer to that is that it has forced me to confront the things that I have always said were important to me, but to actually live them out in my day-to-day life in a way that I was maybe sometimes doing before, but not as consistently as I would have liked maybe. But I think the longer answer to that is that it's also really pulled together all of these different parts of my own personal history I've all my adult life been a fiction writer, but I also had like 12 years of my life when I was a running coach and a head coach at a college. And what's been so interesting in the process of doing shelter in place is for about the first seven or eight months, it was me and then my husband, when he lost his job, eventually joined me. He's a creative as well. His background is in copywriting and advertising and marketing. And we realized that between the two of us, we actually had a lot of accumulated knowledge and experience. And so we launched an apprenticeship program in January. So now we currently have 12 apprentices. We're just focusing on training women, podcasters, and creative entrepreneurs, trying to really give them a vision for life as a creative and and the struggles that are inherent in that, our hope for them is that they would come away with mentors for life. And that has been really an amazing gift to see that coaching part of myself for my past life now meet with the writing part of myself. These are the two gifts I've been given in the world. And now I have an opportunity to pass that on to the next generation of women and to try to really set them up well not just with some skill sets, but really with a vision for what they can do to go out and change the world. I can see the difference when I get to interact and mentor these young women. I have loved getting to help these women identify their potential and then help them figure out how to get there. And you know, one of the things we say up front to them is, 
this is intentionally not an internship. This is an apprenticeship because we're not just giving you the work we don't want to do. We're giving you all the cool work that we're doing and we're inviting you into that. And we want you to get production credits and we want you to get experience and feel like you can get your fingerprints all over this work. And that collaboration and helping these young women grow and blossom, it's such a joy. Oh, I love that. That's so good. It's uh, kind of going back to those personal relationships and finding a common goal. Of course, your common goal is to elevate your apprentices and have them succeed. I think it's so interesting to talk about their potential because what I'm trying to do on the podcast is to show us as a society what our potential is. We can be that society where we are mutually aiding each other, where none of us are too, too poor, none of us are so, so crazy rich, that people have what I would call a middle-class lifestyle, more or less. Have a decent vacation, have a job with dignity, raise their children, have family time. And for so many people, that's not possible right now, especially during the pandemic. And even before the pandemic, this was true. Like you said, so many things were already broken. You mentioned that you're trying to show society what they could be. It just made me think of something that I have been telling our apprentices in interviews. Recently, we were talking about what happens in post-production. And I said, you know, my goal is always to both make somebody sound exactly like themselves and like the best version of themselves. And so I want somebody to feel celebrated. I want them to hear themselves and say, yep, that was exactly me. And also to feel like they get to see themselves at their best. You know, both you and I are trying to do this. When we put these episodes out there, we are also offering that view to society, like you said, of here's what could be. And here's this person we're talking to who is giving us a really beautiful example of that. And can we step into that ourselves? Can we have the courage to decide to show up that way in our lives, even if it is just as small as how we treat our neighbor? Well, I think my favorite part about the guests that I have on Future Hindsight is that they show you the real contours of any issue that they're involved in. They really give us a deep dive of the things that are going right, that are going wrong, where they could be improved, what our opportunities are. And very often, they're not what we think they are. When you are able to have this different perspective, then I think it's so much easier to say, oh, right, I'm really interested in this issue and maybe I can get involved there. When you read the regular news, it's very different because they cover it in this binary way. But often the meat of the matter is not on polar opposites. And people are approaching it from this like, here are the polar opposite solutions. But actually none of those would solve the problem, <laughs> you know? When we can have these conversations like good neighbors, it's much easier to see, oh, actually, this is a really easy fix. All we have to do is commit and do the work. Maybe the most important part is that so many of us in this world, on this planet, really do care. This idea that we are really polarized, I think is not fully accurate. People want to be humane to each other. And 
elevate each other because we all love it when our neighbor's kids do well in school, when they get into good colleges, when they get good jobs. Nobody is sitting here rooting for somebody's demise. I mean, I think some people are. <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, we're not doing that, right? For the exactly. most part, it makes us happy when other people succeed. And so I think this is the thing that I want people to take away, that we can be part of that change. We can make everybody happy, <laughs> in a sense, with our society. Here's my last question for you, and I always end all of my interviews this way. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? The thing that I am most hopeful about is realizing that all of the success and wealth and things that our society tells us are so important are actually not as important as I thought they were. Now my husband and I are getting to do this meaningful work together with these apprentices, being on a team where we can see how we're able to show up for each other and for these women every single day. That actually feels a lot more important than how much money we're making or whether or not we're able to move into a bigger house or whatever. Realizing that, okay, if our basic needs are covered, all of those things that we thought were so important, all that striving wasn't making us happy before. And we are much more fulfilled in pouring into other people. I can show up for other people every single day through this work and offer something of myself and pass on to them the things that I've learned and encourage them and share a little bit of that hope with them because it is uncertain, but it doesn't mean it's hopeless. I agree. It isn't hopeless. Can I ask you the same question? Sure. <laughs> what gives you hope right now? So what gives me hope? I think the Biden administration is giving me a lot of hope right now, which is slightly unexpected because I was kind of a skeptic that a 78-year-old man would be the right person <laughs> in the White House. Yeah. But I feel like he has really seized on the opportunity in a way that is unexpected and that he has done it without any fanfare. You know, he just doesn't do the media bit. He just gets these bills passed. And I'm sure he's working behind the scenes in ways that we don't fully see. And the other thing that makes me hopeful is that we have a vaccine and that the rollout has been so tremendous. And finally, what makes me hopeful is that it's spring. This sounds almost trite, but it feels like we're so close now. We just have to get to the other side. <laughs> and then when it comes to racism, the silver lining of the shooting is that actually we're talking about it in a different way, meaning that we're talking about it at all as a possible hate crime. Whereas I think before it would just be like um, eight people were shot in Atlanta, thoughts and prayers. It's not different enough, but it is different. I love the way that our podcast, they feel sort of like I don't know, friends or something, or sisters, or <laughs> very yes, complimentary. Yes, like sisters. <laughs> That's that. a good analogy. <laughs> Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank it was you. really a pleasure. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. Thank you so much, Mila. I really appreciate the work you're doing. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and got a glimpse into what makes us tick. My biggest takeaway is that we can all agree being a good neighbor is a worthy and attainable goal, and that we can all be invested in achieving it. 
I also believe that the level of American civic engagement has increased in the last four years, which is borne out in the simplest terms by record voting turnout in the 2018 midterms, all the special elections since 2017, and the 2020 general election. I'm confident that making an even bigger commitment to our shared civic life will render the best version, the full potential of our society. Next week, we launch an all-new author's season focusing on books that get into the weeds of America's most vexing problems. We'll be talking about everything from criminal justice and philosophy to economics, labor, and poverty. Our first guest is the legendary Kurt Anderson on his latest book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. He looks under the hood of the movements that powered our continuous shift to the right, starting with a strong yearning for nostalgia in the 1970s. Instead of saying, wait, we want to get rid of Social Security and get rid of the New Deal and get rid of Medicare and, and make your life harder, they sold it as part of this return to America the way it was when we were living in nice small towns and we were cowboys. On the heels of that episode, we take a deep dive into how the former president was decades in the making with an interview of Sarah Kenzior, author of Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. Trump is not a political neophyte in any way. He was mentored by Roy Cohn, who is both a GOP operative and the lawyer for the five crime families of New York City. And before that, of course, he was uh, Joe McCarthy's lawyer. He helped create McCarthyism, and he was one of Nixon's advisors and then one of Reagan's advisors. And after that, we speak to Andy Norman, the author of Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. He offers tools to inoculate our minds against the worst forms of ideological contagion. The famed Socratic method, where you test ideas with questions and see how they fare and let go of them if they don't withstand scrutiny, that that method is actually one of the most beautiful and powerful mind inoculants ever invented. We can enhance it and turn it into something that goes even further in the direction of inoculating minds against the worst forms of cognitive contagion. It will be a thought-provoking season of visionary and practical ideas to reimagine our future. Until next time, Stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.